If you ask me where would I go in the Bible to find out words to encourage us for what's going on in the uncertainty of our time, and we're studying biblical certainty or Christian, Christian stability in times of historical uncertainty on Wednesdays, but just as a little taste of this, if, if you said where would you go in the word of God to say what should Americans expect or, or hang on to in the uncertain historical times with the virus the, the, the towering debt and the global economic structure. We don't talk about that one much, but that just keeps on getting bigger. And the, um, well, the, the Chinese strategic threat that the military, if you talk to military people, will tell you about. And then finally, the, the racism, socialism ma masking behind uh, the the racism problem. It's really socialism behind racism. That's the whole, those all things align up. But if you take all these crazy things that are going on in our time and you try to um, get some biblical strength regarding these things, where would you go in the Bible? I've heard once a, a pastor went to Jeremiah to find how America should conduct itself. And the prophet Jeremiah to the southern kingdom of Israel, the weeping prophet, who actually observed the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon. And um, so some ideas were gathered from there and we'll do that. Another popular writer has said, you look in Isaiah, like in chapter 9, verse 11, and you can hear George Bush's speech from 2001 or something. Others will say, well, if you go to Matthew 24, you hear the birth pangs, and this tells you about all the things that are going on right now in uh, the newspaper with earthquakes and hurricanes and, and military strife. I think if you do the exegesis, the actual, do the work of reading the passages in context, Jeremiah's poetry, Isaiah's poetry, do the poem, work the poetry to understand what's happening there. It's beautiful. It's ingenious. And it has a meaning the author intended. If you go to Matthew 24, G Jesus is talking about the tribulation. He's talking about in Matthew 24, he's not talking about the precursor to the tribulation. He's talking about the tribulation. Seven years of hardship of Jacob's trouble that are coming, that are on the horizon. So where would you go? Well, I'll go to Matthew 28 because I believe that there's a difference in the mission that Jesus has for Israel, had for Israel, God had for Israel, and the mission that Jesus puts the church on. And the church is not Israel, but Israel, the remnant of Israel, became the seed that became, grew into the church, the ministry of Paul, which is one new man in Christ, Jew and Gentile together. That's, that's, Largely the conclusions you draw from Paul's epistles, especially like in Ephesians 3 and in Galatians. What am I saying? I'm saying, well, we should figure out what the instructions are for the church. But I want to know about the United States, about the country, this nation. Well, there was an effort. There have been efforts all through church history to try to make a nation Israel, make America Israel, to make, we're the new Israel as a nation. And to misappropriate what God says to national covenant Israel, God's choice nation and apply that to countries. It's just bad, that's bad exegesis and it's really bad application. Now, 
Exegesis just means what does the passage mean in the author's context? What's he saying? What does he mean by it? The application is what are the principles that those meanings give us that we can read in, into any situation? An application is all of Scripture is applicable. And you might misapply it. Like, uh, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. It's talking about Israel. There's an application there. I would apply that, I would say, without going too far into misappropriating and replacing Israel with Gentile nations. Never do that. It's a satanic error to replace Israel with anything. God has an eternal purpose for Israel, his nation. But, but that idea that you would take um, that verse and say, okay, he's talking about Israel, and this is how God deals with his choice nation. And we would certainly say that God would bless us to the extent that we served him. Now, is that not something you observe in American history? They say America wasn't founded as a Christian nation, meaning it's not in the documents. Well, but Christians founded it with Christian principles that are applications, by the way. And so it depends on what you mean by Christian nation. But yeah, universal Christian worldview and attitude in various, with some differences, okay, forming the basis for this country and incredible blessing like never seen in world history. I can observe that, but I'm not going to go exegete Jeremiah to make it apply directly to us like we're going to replace the national dealings with Israel. So I wouldn't take the five cycles of discipline that God gave Israel in Leviticus 26. I wouldn't apply that to any Gentile nation. That's God talking to Israel in the, in the law, in the Mosaic law, their, their constitution. We're not a theocracy. And so we just have to be careful. So my point is you can get distracted by all this newspaper exegesis or Jeremiah or uh, Isaiah nine verse 11 being uh, George Bush's speech from 2011, all the 2001, all this weird mystical Jumping to conclusions, conjecturism. I hate it. I hate it. Well, don't send it to me. I don't, I don't like that stuff. The Bible actually tells you who you are. You're the church. You're the body of Christ. This is an international organization, meaning all the nations. Okay, we go to all the nations. And so, and we're Americans. This is this nation that's, the, that's this portion of the church. But there are other countries that are other nations, and they have the church in their nation. And we're the church, the body of Christ, to go to all the nations and make disciples. That's the mission. That is the mission. We're not going to build the kingdom. We're recruiting for those who will rule with Christ in it. I'll say it again. We are not building the kingdom. Jesus will establish his kingdom. He needs to be physically present to do that. We are recruiting for him in his instructions for those, the church, who will rule with him when it's here. And there's a huge difference in those protocols. This is why the Roman Catholic project of we're going to become this kingdom on earth. They've got their capital at the Vatican. It's its own nation. This idea that we're going to go take over the world. No, they tried it. History has borne out that that's not really what's going on right now. But in that kingdom of the People's Republic of China, the communist People's Republic of China, the growth of the body of Christ, people that have trusted in Jesus as their savior who are being made disciples. I don't know in what quality or to what extent, but the fact that that's ongoing in that wicked regime, you see, that's the project. 
and it may flip. China may politically flip at some point, it may get enough power where freedom becomes the order of the day in China. That may happen. But I'm not expecting that to happen. I'm expecting Christians to, to, to make other Christians and for them to come under persecution and suffer. And so I think it's very important in our time to look at, especially, it's always been important, but in, in suffering, what are we here doing? The greatest witnessing for Christ historically has been done under the greatest persecution. And we read about it. We haven't experienced it, but we read about it. And I challenge you to check out the, the Voice of the Martyrs materials where they're, they're looking. Where is the church, the body of Christ being persecuted in the world? What are the stories? What are the images? What kind of suffering is going on? And if we thought that way, we might have a different picture, a little bit of the freedoms and the, the treasure we have that's been bequeathed to us by our founders. But nevertheless, I'm trying to make a distinction between application of the text and exegesis of the text. And if my friend Jonathan Kahn, I don't know him, Jonathan Kahn, the writer, the, I'm sure brother in Christ, for example, if his writings are just meant to be an application, I don't read them that way, but if that's what he means, then okay. If it's an application. But when he's like intuiting, mystically intuiting that what Isaiah was talking about was this event in America's history. That's, you can't really get there in Isaiah. You, you can't, you, you would have to do damage to what Isaiah says, which is a traditional thing in church history for, since origin and really before him, there's been this effort to misread the text and to say, whatever occurs to me is kind of how I feel. And um, I don't want to do that. So let's get our fingers back in the Bible. Let's put our, put our finger in Ephesians chapter five, Ephesians chapter five, where we find there are two uh, big pieces to Ephesians. There's Ephesians chapters one through three, and there's Ephesians chapters four through six, two chapters, two, two, two pieces of the book of Ephesians. Now this is meant as the alternative, right? By the way, teaching the Bible as God has given it in the inspiration of the spirit and what the author's thinking and the language he used. That's to me, that's a better alternative than mystically intuiting random verses. But, um, you, you have two big pieces to Ephesians. You have what's called some say the doctrinal section and the application section, it's, it's all teaching for our instruction. So it's all doctrinal, but the theory and practice would be how we would talk about it today. These are the principles and these are the practices. Ephesians one through three is the, the, the deposit uh, culminating in the great doctrine of the church, the new organization, the new man in Christ, uh, the, composed of both Jew and Gentile, uh, the body of Christ. And then in four through six is the so what? So we have the privileges of the church in chapters one through three, and you have the practices of the church in four through six. And it's one of the, it's my favorite so what section in the Bible. It's my favorite. I've spent so many hours teaching you Ephesians chapters five and six. And it's, it's, I almost want to just say, y'all know the deal. Amen. I love this portion of the Bible. Now chapter four, as we saw, is mostly the apostle Paul saying, put off the old man. So you, have your, you have your sin nature that is, is motivating you to disobey God. You have this problem. We read about it, especially in Romans 7, all through the Bible. You have a tendency, a sin nature. And that is not the same as you committing personal sins, but it is the inner enemy that motivates you to commit personal sins. To live your life just driven by whatever your sinful lusts dictate is the old life. It's the old man. So old man doesn't mean in Paul's language, it's not a word for sin nature. It's the life you lived 
in submission to the sin nature. And that's why Romans 6, submit your bodies as instruments of, to God, instruments of righteousness to God, not to the flesh. Don't walk according to the flesh in Romans 8, walk by the spirit. This is, this is what we're talking about. The, the flesh and the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5. And I, I have beloved brothers that'll say, no, there's no such thing as the sin nature. <clears throat> but uh, there's a reason why you feel contrary to what God wants you to, to think and do. There's a reason why these feelings occur to you. These, these, these urges happen. It's your sinful nature. And the, I don't, I don't want to tell you that you have a, an excuse for committing personal sin. We're told we're freed from the power of the sin nature. We don't have to obey its lusts, but it's still there. And so Paul says in chapter four, do not walk in that manner of life, walk in the new life. And here, is, so here are some practical ways you would see the difference. And we saw all the ways, all the different things. In chapter five, the conclusion from that idea is that you are to imitate your father like a little kid tries to act like his dad. But as you grow up, you're not a three-year-old putting on dad's shoes and flopping around the bedroom, you know, with dad's shoes on and his hat and a tie and nothing else as a three-year-old might do. You know, you're not just acting like dad in a, in a cute way, like a baby. As you grow and you put on more and more spiritual muscle and maturity, as you add rings to the tree, what you're supposed to be doing is looking more and more like your dad in a mature sense. So dad runs the company and you make your choices. You think like dad and you, you make your choices for the same reasons he makes his choices and, and your desires are starting to align more and more with his desires. This is spiritual maturity. And so this is the great call to growth. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And so walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. What this means is if I'm in a constant process of spiritual growth and the pattern is to act like my dad in love and the example I've been given for that love is Jesus on the cross for me. If that's all, I mean, there's a lot being said there, but notice I'm, I'm growing into this behavior, this mode of life that acts like dad. I am given the specifics. It's in love, the sphere of love, God's love that is being expressed. And then that sphere of love is what? That sphere of love is exemplified by Jesus' death on my behalf on the cross. Then that means I never leave the cross in my perspective. I'm always in the shadow of the cross. That means Jesus is always on the cross to me. That's a mistake. It means that the effects, the, the, the sacrifice, the love, all that's involved in this greatest event in human history is always on my mind. It's always characterizing me. And when we come back to that thought and it's a fresh thought we haven't thought in a while, we're like, well, I haven't thought about the cross. That's probably because you're probably having this thought because you're reading the apostle Paul, you're reading the scriptures. And then he goes into verses three through five, the sons of disobedience upon whom the wrath of God abides. And so you don't want to walk with them in verse seven, do not be partakers with them for you were formerly darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. So you walk as children of the light. And then we, we spent a lot of time last Sunday talking about the suffering that you will encounter because you walk and let the light shine because you're in the darkness. As the darkness descends, the light is going to shine. Um, I saw an interesting non-scientific 
graph the other day of where the culture is, at least the popular culture, at least the National Basketball Association's popular culture. <laughs> Did you see the game where the one kid stood up for the national anthem and everybody else is kneeling? Everybody's in uniform, Black Lives Matter uniform. By the way, the reason that phrase is offensive to me, it's offensive to me, is because it assumes that we all don't believe that. Like you need to be told. You might as well wear a shirt that says water is wet or you gotta have oxygen to breathe or some other thing that we all already agree with. And it's, a, it's an indictment of this culture that has done more to take care of people on the question of the culture and race than any other culture in world history. But no, we have to be told this. Like, uh, and, then, and then people are like, oh, I guess I didn't believe that. Of course you believed that. But, sorry, don't, don't let me digress too much. But, but the one kid standing up with all the power, all the power. Here's the power he has. The kid is, uh, is a dark-skinned man. I won't say African-American because I don't even know what that means. Are there any American Africans? I, I, don't, I don't know. Anyway, um, I'll just say he's a dark-skinned man of uh, African extraction because we don't know how to talk anymore. I don't like the word black. I hate that. I love the people. I don't, they're not black. They have dark skin. But anyway, so. Um, and by the way, if, uh, if you make an issue of race, you're starting to, to tread into racism. And I hate to do that. We're one race. So I don't like all the racist stuff that I see now in the name of anti-racism. But anyway, the, the kid stands up and he is of African extraction. And so the whole community he's in is trying to say, lay at his feet the, this special treatment, this special um, emphasis that Black Lives Matter. And he does not kneel. He doesn't wear their shirt. He just stands up while the national anthem is being played. And um, that is a way to get people's attention. This kid has all the power because he's dark-skinned. Put a microphone in his face. Have y'all seen what this, I forget this kid's name. If you know it, just say it out. It's the first hour you can tell me. I forget his name. I'll, I'll come up with it in a minute. You know what he said? They had a press conference. Call him on the carpet. What are you doing? He said, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as my savior and the gospel is really what everyone needs. He said, the problem of racial dis disharmony or any of the things is handled at the cross and it's only handled at the cross. And I think this is just, uh, this is for me, this is not how we are gonna solve this. I told you he had all the power. When these kids, when these young people stand up and tell the truth, he, I, I understand later, I think he's a pastor or a minister of, of some sort. When these kids stand up and tell the truth, when they give the answer in the middle of Satan's playground, you know they're going to come under attack, so you've got to pray for them. And I think that it's easy to apply Ephesians chapter five, verses seven through 14. But the illustration here is let the light shine. Now, when you shine the light of the truth in the darkness, you're gonna have the darkness try to blow the light out. And so the good news is uh, it's not about you. 
That's not about what they think about you. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not even about you. You're about him and there's your power. All right. This brings us to Ephesians chapter five, because we're all awake, awake, sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. And so verse 15 of Ephesians five, therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So that it not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Understand what the will of the Lord is. That is an awesome challenge. Let me put it up here and I'll put it in a little bit of a indented diagram. Take care or watch how carefully you walk or how you carefully walk. Now, why have I put these words in red? Take care how you walk. Yeah, I heard it here, command. You said imperative. What's an imperative? You tell me right now what's an imperative. You get it? Imperative is a mood of command in English and Greek and Hebrew. It just means you're telling someone what, they, what, what you want them to do. It's your volition as the speaker talking to the audience. So take care how you walk. This is real different than taking care how you're being treated or taking care how you feel or a lot. Of, I mean, you got to look at some of those things, but this is about how you walk. This is check the oil in the car. When you're driving, make sure you're looking at the mirrors, have a clear view out the windshield and keep your eye on the road, right? This is, this is a uh, high voltage here. Take care how you walk, how you carefully walk. The word carefully is an adverb describing the word walk, not as unwise. That show up, that's kind of, kind of light there up there. Not as unwise, a description making a category of people. The Bible does put people into categories and it does at times make these categories that you and I don't want to be in. Unwise. That would be uh, <clears throat> foolish. The Bible is not very complimentary of us in our natural unregenerate un, uh, state. And it has a different way of looking at wisdom than the world does. We've read in Ephesians 4 about the mataiotes, the, the emptiness is the Greek word of the heart of unbelief and how there's a, there's a problem in cognition. There's a problem in uh, appraisal of the things of God in the heart of unbelief. It just, that's how it is. God's going to have to regenerate that person and enlighten them for them to come to see the truth. And this is the problem of, of the secular discourse in a culture is you've got people of different mindsets, different perspectives, and there'll never be a way to bridge those two perspectives. You cannot get unbelief and belief together because uh, there is a breakdown in capacity somehow. Read about it in Ephesians 4. But he says, not as unwise. This makes a category that you don't want to be in, but you could be in. <clears throat> when he says, be careful how you walk, he's saying you could do this the wrong way. Not as unwise. Now, somebody remember from the study of Proverbs or from your own reading of Proverbs, what is God's summary definition of wisdom? There's, there's no wrong answer unless it's the wrong answer. But uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge in one place and wisdom another. Okay. That's a great starting point to have knowledge and wisdom. 
do you remember what I, what I taught you? I mean, this is, a, this is not really a trick question, but this does go back to 2007, 2008, the long, long ago, and the far, far away. Do you remember what wisdom chokhmah means? You remember? Yeah. Yeah, skill. And the skill, it's always skill. When you see this word used in Hebrew, it's talking about somebody's capability or know-how applied. It's applied know-how to do something. Now, in Proverbs, the skill that's being addressed is not Bezalel making the Ark of the Covenant, although he's wise in his craft. That's one use of chokhmah, is he's wise, the, the, the craftsman that built the Ark and the tabernacle. He's got that skill. But, so we would say like a wise craftsman. But what's the skill we're talking about in Proverbs? Living your life before God. That's wisdom in the Bible. And I think that makes a theological category that the Bible is consistent with. And you read about it in Psalm 1, the great opening of the Psalms, the hymn book of Israel, is a wisdom song, a wisdom poem about the two ways, the wise path and the foolish path. And that's the righteous and the wicked. And it's the fear of the Lord and the ignorance, the willful ignorance of the Lord. <clears throat> and this is what you want to do with your life. Watch how you walk, not as unwise, but in contrast as wise. And then he's very helpful to give us a specific sense in which he means wise. Well, what do you mean wise? This is where it's gonna nail us. It's gonna really help you and the time in which you live to think about your life. Some of you are lifting the shield of unbelief to make sure that the truth of God's word doesn't make it in as I prep you to say, this is gonna blow us away if we listen carefully. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. The apostle Paul goes from a general sense of living and walking, look at it, look up here, look at the navy blue words. Wise will be to take account of the shortness of your life and make it valuable every step of the way. Each step of your life is called a day. The days are evil. And the evil he means, I'm convinced, is uh, the, how short this life is and how wicked the world is and how this sojourn in our lives is, is under pressure. This is the same book. We're one chapter away from the war that we're all waging. We heard a hint at it in Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, and the prince of the power of the air and the sons of disobedience. And now we're headed to the full armor of God and the attack of the evil one. And you stand firm. And right here in the spiritual life, setting you up for the, the power of the spiritual life, the apostle Paul says, wisdom for you is going to be making the very most of your time. And what does that mean? Well, that means that the young people who think that they don't think about how long life is gonna be, Y'all need to think about how short it is and how when you're bored, that's a red flag. That's a waste. This is unwise that we're wasting the moments. There's a time for rest and rest can involve leisure, but we're here for a mission. So we make the most of the time for the days are evil. This is wisdom in the church age through the Apostle Paul. The skill to live your life before God and the time in which you live is to recognize you're at war and you are on a mission and you need to make the most of your time.
The days are evil. Paul emphasizes that aspect of wisdom. <clears throat> then he says, for this reason, do not be unthinking. Genomai is the word to be here and uh, gives you an adjective um, um, that can be unthinking or ignorant, Ophronis. Not mind, not minded would be the phroneo, phrone, that, that P-H-R-O-N word group has to do with the mind. And the application of mind is in thinking, so a lot of times it means thinking. But he says, do not be ignorant. Now, if we say ignorant, our mind kind of says, oh, I know what that means. That's an insult. But if I tell you unthinking, not applying your powers of uh, attention and concentration to reason, that's what he's talking about. That's what ignorance is, by the way. The passive entertainment that our forefathers knew nothing of for, in, in the church age, 1947 years or whatever it was. <laughs> Think about it, church age, 33 AD, until the advent of television and passive entertainment. You could probably go to radio too. I don't want to step on anybody's nostalgia for the old radio shows, but passive entertainment. The idea that I'm just kind of going to go and drift and, and veg. Well, this has really taken on uh, a whole new significance through the world. Really, all urban culture in the world has become uh, focused and fixated on this. And I think it's designed to make you unthinking. Probably. You could fix that, by the way. A couple of good ways. You could add a conversation or two critically evaluating what you've just observed once you go observe something. There have been times, I don't want to scare anyone. I don't want anybody to feel like there's some sort of moral, you know, breakdown here. There have been times when I have, with some of the other young men in the church, gone to the theater, I mean the movie theater, to watch the cinema. I know, right, it's crazy. Charles Spurgeon would be done. He'd be like, he would cast me out and uh, put me in the newspaper as someone to avoid. Going to the theater. Back then, what movies, it was the, it was the live theater, like plays and operas and stuff. Now, I didn't do that to go learn what God thinks. I did it to enjoy some time with my friends, but the, well, the best part of it is to sit down and talk about it after. What, what did we see? What did we... What did, what did we miss that we were being fed? The point is that your culture is designed to make you ignorant, unthinking. These people wear a suit, as far as we could tell from here up, and sit in front of the camera and look professional and informed, and they read the news. And that is supposed to tell us what's going on. Do not be unthinking or ignorant, but rather be understanding. Um, there is no verb here. It's a participle, and it is the word suniemi, S-U-N-I-E-M-I, translated understanding. And it is, it is, let me tell you what um, the new Art Gingrich says. It says to have an intelligent grasp of something that challenges one th one's thinking or practice. <laughs> I'll say it again. When he says understanding, suniemi, he's saying that there is a, a with being, those two, sun and yemi, there, there's some sort of being together 
this is reasoning. This is taking two concepts and seeing how they compare and contrast. And, and this, is, this is the building blocks in Greek uh, for what we call thinking. And it, it's just a word. It's just a label. But understand, he's talking about thinking. Again, Art and Gingrich say it's to have an intelligent grasp of something that challenges one's thinking or practice. To have an intelligent grasp of something. So you have the one principle and you bring the soon, you bring the other with, that soon means with, and you put these two things together and you compare them. That's the idea. And so this means that there's a filter. This means that there is the truth in you and your conscience is primed, not by God's enemy, but by God's word. So that when you hear the lie, you can bring these things together, the truth together with the lie and think it through. Like for example, America is a racist nation and therefore must be destroyed in terms of its constitution and rebuilt to be something that's not racist. Okay, that's a proposition that's being advanced. What should we say about it? And you're like, keep going to that illustration, Pastor. I think it's important to actually be wise and think through what you're seeing today. The truth is that all people are sinners and all secular cultures, to the extent that they're composed of unbelievers, are going to be deceived and corrupted. By one of the many attacks or many of the many attacks Satan brings on the thinking of man to cloud his heart and show in every example is showing you how we're not in the kingdom and the only good righteous rule is going to be Jesus over the nations. And then when that happens, we'll say here it is and, and we're here now. It's not happening yet. So, so we're looking at sinful humans throughout all the world. And one of the ways humans are sinful is that they hate each other because they're arrogant about their own skin color and they hate the other for the different skin color. And we're just arrogant fools because we don't love God and so love what he loves. That's the, that's the human race, not the American experience. This is, the fact is there's no amount of money you're gonna throw at this and change it in the human heart. It's gonna be something that you can't buy that was bought for you at the cross with the blood of Jesus Christ. Recognizing that these people are made in God's image and God has a purpose for them and it's, most clearly demonstrated at the cross of Jesus, this is the answer. It's the only answer. There is no other answer. Oh, we don't want your Christian answer. We want our secular answer. No, you're just working for your enemy to make sure you get as many people to say no to the cross as possible. That's what that is. So the two propositions, people are sinful, all cultures are corrupted by sin, and we're not building a single kingdom in, in any given nation. We're recruiting for those who will trust in Christ, who is the only answer in all the nations. That's my proposition. You, you meet that with this idea, we have to destroy this culture because the most, the, the most free place in world history uh, hasn't solved the human heart. No, These, this is just a veiled effort at people that have always hated the freedom of this country to destroy it. That's all it is. That's all it is. And if you want to change people's hearts, you tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ. You make disciples of the nations and you teach them to think and observe all that he has said. And that doesn't start with let's treat people the same. As you treat people with with kindness, with integrity, with justice, as you treat people as you should, as God's image bearers, and you respect all human lives, all of them, all of them, especially the ones that are being killed at the highest rate, which we don't talk about. As you respect God's image and, and his design of human life, you address this problem of sin and say, you're made wonderfully, but 
you've got a problem, and we all do. And if you can point out someone's sin, congratulations, you've seen it in someone else. Now let's look at you. What are your sins? What's your problem? And that's, that's the way this thing develops. But um, see, the, the, you're never, you may get it right in your own head, and you may be able to help other Christians see it, but I have very little faith in our ability to share this problem and its solution with the heart of unbelief, God's going to have to save that person, ultimately. Now look at your two contrasts. Don't, be wise, don't, don't walk as unwise, but as wise. And in this case, wasting time would be unwise. Wasting time, because you have work to do. Jesus didn't waste time. Do you remember the long day? You remember the long day of ministry in Jesus' life? Many things happened on one day, one calendar day in his ministry, if you watch the Gospels closely. The day that Jesus walked on water, I should say the night, but that same 24-hour period, probably more like 36-hour period is a long period of ministry. The day that he walked on water was the day that he fed the 5,000 was the day he went away to pray to his father in heaven. And the feeding of the 5,000 was at the conclusion of a, a full day while the sun was out of ministry. The, the 5,000 was dinner time and then was prayer time and then was meet the disciples as they rode across the Sea of Galilee against a, a storm. That you read about it in Matthew 14 and other places. But that was, Jesus didn't waste time. He did all that work of healing and preaching before the feeding of the 5,000. And then he, sh he showed them, he said, Lord, it's over the day. It's, you know, they've spent, it's time for dinner. Send everyone home. And he said, no, no, no. I'm glad you brought this up. Let's get to work. It's time for us to start working. You give them something to eat. Jesus didn't waste time. We would understand if he took rest by going to sleep after all of that. He sent the crowds away after feeding the 5,000. We would understand if he, if he went to sleep. Jesus knows the needs of the human body. He knows the need for sleep, but he also needs, knows the spiritual needs, I suspect, better than we do. And so he didn't go take a nap. He didn't sleep and rest and prepare himself for the long walk across the Sea of Galilee. He went to the mountain to talk to his father. And this is, I mean, up to a place by himself where he could pray. This is a great example if you think about what Paul's saying, don't waste the time. For this reason, do not become unthinking or ignorant, but understanding what is the will of the Lord. I want to say, as we're going through here, what I don't believe he's saying in verse 17, to understand what the will of the Lord is. I don't think he's saying you need to mystically intuit what God wants in the specifics of your situation. That without any word of God truth, for you to apply to the circumstance that you're supposed to just kind of feel your way, feel your way, t test your feelings and see what is God's will. That's not what he's talking about. And context is not what he's talking about. You're not supposed to be unwise, but wise. That's not unskilled, but skilled. Skilled how? In not wasting your life because you have work to do. For this reason, don't be ignorant. Better is translated unthinking but be thinking, be knowing, be understanding what is the will of the Lord. And this is going to be 
helpful in its context. He doesn't want you to walk in darkness with the sons of disobedience in chapter 5, verses 7 through 14. He wants you to walk as children of the light. We know what the will of the Lord is in the context that he's told us. And all the discussion of walking in righteousness or walking in personal sin has given us this content, this perspective. And now let's close down before we open the the Lord's table with the filling of the Holy Spirit. Do not be drunk with wine. In red letters, because it's a command, it's an imperative in Greek. Do not be drunk with wine. This means to be so influenced by it that it is, in a sense, in one way, taking over, in another way, not really taking over. You're responsible for what you do when you're intoxicated. But there is a, a clearly the language we've used in our legal culture and in our, in our jurisprudence to say influence. We say if someone is driving with, with intoxication, they're under the influence of alcohol. That's actually really good language, I think. Now, what does alcohol do to the brain? What does this particular stimulant do to the brain? Well, it's not a stimulant. It's a, it's a drug that depresses the function of your brain. Other medications or other, other uh, chemicals, I should say, will, will uh, stimulate the function of your brain and cause toxicity in a different way amphetamines will do this and, and so forth. And um, uh, there are all kinds of substances that I think you could apply to what he's saying here, being influenced to the point of being characterized by the wine. But that's what it means to be drunk with wine is that you're influenced by this to the point that you're characterized by it. And so everyone wants to read this verse and say, okay, so where is the point at which consumption of wine results in this having happened? Paul doesn't tell you. And so thankfully our government tells you it's point, what, what is it, 0.08 or something? What it, <laughs> that's not the, the right answer either. It's, it's in the passage. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled by the Spirit is talking about influence. You don't want to be characterized by what happens that it depresses the brain function, reduces in, inhibitions, and now what you wouldn't have thought, said, done, you are thinking, saying, doing, because the, the nature is given more, more free reign and your cogn- cognition is reduced. So we're talking about it having its influence. So how do, we, how do we measure that? With fear and trembling before the Lord. And some have said, let's just cut to the chase, make this easy and say, God means never, not one drop will touch our lips. And then they go to Proverbs 31 and King Lemuel and not for you, O king, you're not supposed to drink wine. You're not supposed to have beer. But every verse in the Bible is in a context. And in the Bible context, we have the whole book of Deuteronomy. And uh, God is not saying that there is not one drop touch your lips. He's saying you're not supposed to be intoxicated. You're not supposed to be characterized by it. So at what point are you? That's the point where you're wrong. And if you don't know where that point is, if you don't know how to handle that, you should never touch it. Why would you break fellowship with God over a feeling? You would do it because you were going to ignore God. You're going to function as a functional atheist and say, I just want to feel good in the moment. Don't do that. But that's my little diatribe on do not be drunk with wine. The Lord Jesus' first miracle, as we know in Cana, was turning water into wine. And I know there are people that want to make that because of their prior convictions. They want to make that grape juice. Well, it is grape juice. And it's excellent fermented grape juice that has uh, the, the, this, such a great sense of age that they say this is the good stuff when, um, when they 
serve it. But do not be drunk with wine, and why? And which is a waste. Now, read it in context. In verse 15, unwise, or sorry, verse 16, unwise is, uh, and, and wise, that's not knowing to make the most of the time because the days are evil. See, he's, that's the thought he has in mind, is the worthy walk is taking care of the time of your life that you have to live, and so don't waste it. Don't waste it. And so that's a sin. And, and we think, well, what's the sin? Touching the, the thing that I shouldn't have touched. Well, it's, it's by, by the way, some people, it just occurred to me, some people should never touch this because they don't know when to stop. They can't stop. They won't stop themselves. And they've learned that. And so thank God they've discovered never touch it. And that's my counsel for you. Never touch it if you get a dependency. But the reason that it's bad to be drunk with wine is because it wastes your life. And that is not a very Baptist thought. As far as I've known, Baptists, I'm Baptistic, of course, proud in the Lord to be pastor of the first Baptist church of Preston, Connecticut. Preston City Baptist Church, reflagged Preston City Bible Church somewhere in the 80s, I think. In my view, the Bible church movement is the completion of the Reformation on many things, including the Baptist movement, because they're the Bible people, and so here we are. Now, what I mean when I say it's not a very Baptist thought. For a lot of people, this is the moral issue. Did you touch it? Do you have any alcohol at all? That's the moral question because they've got this idea that it's unclean, like, uh, like Levitical code. So they, they think it's like uh, Israel would have said pork. Don't eat the unclean thing. And so you touch that unclean demon lickle and then, and then that's the sin. But I just want you to see what Paul says about inebriation, intoxication. Um, this will change your worldview on things if you let it. It's a waste of your life. It's a waste. It's a dissipation. That's what that means. He's, you're wasting your life. Can I apply that with you in a way that'll nail you and me and all those who don't, uh, don't give in to intoxication, who don't subscribe to this, that are never guilty of this? Can I, can I nail you with it's a waste? The sin he's talking about is wasting time. One way to be sure to do it is to give yourself over to drink or any other substance. It's a waste of time. You're wasting life. And that goes to God's design. You're God's image bearer. You're made new in Christ. You have a mission. Hebrews 12, let's run the race that's set before us. That has been set before us. Think about this. The, the sin is wasting God's time that he's given you to serve him. Now, don't let the punch, don't, don't take the punch out of the alcohol discussion. He's a, there's a reason he's talking about alcohol, and it goes to the next thing about the filling of the Spirit. But I just want you to understand, the point is not don't ever touch it or don't touch it too much, which you shouldn't. The point is don't do anything that's going to waste your life, that's going to waste your time. And the contrast will be what makes the time valuable, be filled by the Spirit. That's the theme that's running through here. Even in Israel, it wasn't unclean. They had uh, many feasts that included the command to serve um, what your Bible will translate as strong drink, which is fermented grain. That would be beer today in our English language and uh, fermented fruit, which would be wine. Serving the Lord, rejoicing before Yahweh in festival, not in 
inebriation or intoxication, not in waste or in dissipation, but in celebrating God. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but rather, in contrast, be filled by, my translation, be filled by the Spirit. I think this context will help us understand what he means by the filling of the Spirit. And this is perhaps, to me, the life verse of, um, of what life is really about. Be filled by the Spirit. That little command, it's in red, plerao in the, watch this, in the present tense, which means it's always a responsibility. It's, it's an ongoing thing. Passive voice, which means someone else does the action, someone else does the filling, but you are to not stop it. It's passive. You be filled by the Spirit. In other words, you can't do it to yourself. This is always waiting. God always wants to do this to you. It's a constant responsibility in the present tense. It's passive voice, play around in the passive, to be filled. And it's in the imperative mood. You're responsible. You, second person, plural, you do this. All of those things are happening at once in this awesome little verse, then this little verb. And everything from here until chapter 6, verse 9 is under this command, grammatically. Everything follows from this command. We're going to get into the household code as we've talked about in Christian spirituality recently, we're going to get into the household code in chapter 5, verse 22 through 6, verse 9. And it's all under the idea of being filled by the Spirit. You can check it out in verse 21. Submit one to another in the fear of Christ. This is a participle going back to being filled by the Spirit. And then submit one to another goes to wives to your husbands in verse 22. And then it's all the relationships in the household under the spirit. This is exactly the same thing in Colossians 3 when Paul does the household code there. He goes marriage, children, and slaves and masters or, or, biz, or work relationships, labor and management. He goes through all the relationships of the household in Colossians after telling you be filled with the, with the spirit by telling you let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. The last thing I want to say before we switch over to the Lord's table is the command to be filled by the spirit is contrasted with not being drunk with wine because of the concept of influence. This is a confusion people have about the filling of the Spirit. There's all kinds of confusion people have. It's because we try to say, well, what does my experience tell me about this verse so that I can connect the two and then I know? Because that's a, we have this way of knowing that isn't really a way of knowing. It'd be better to look at the text. Watch what he says. To be filled by the Spirit is going to have certain results, speaking to one another, giving thanks to God, Submitting one to another, these things are going to be results of the filling of the Spirit. But he doesn't tell you what the filling of the Spirit is. Those are, those are its results. But the filling by the Spirit is somehow contrasted with wasting time because of inebriation, intoxication with alcohol, with wine. So what is that nature of the contrast? I know if we're filled by the Spirit, then we ought to feel a little giddy, a little, uh, you know, a little, little, buzzy, they say, I should have a buzz or something. That, that would be the, feel, fe, the feeling of the spirit, right? The filling goes to feeling, and then that's some sort of mysticism. No, no, no. This is a present constant responsibility you're always responsible for, and it actually relates. Think about this as I illustrate the, the meaning here. Think about how we treat criminals who do what they do when they're intoxicated. Think about how we treat them. We do not say they've lost moral agency when they commit crime while intoxicated. You never have the ability to get out of a, of a higher crime than wasting your life with alcohol. 
You can't get out of it by saying I was drunk. Now there, is that about kind of? You kind of can. We still hold, we still hold moral agency at, to some degree. And uh, I understand our common law is probably a little, little wonky on this. Right, because we've got to always go to intent in our jurisprudence. Thank you. Right. So, um, so it's like an insanity claim. You've lost moral agency. If you are uh, bereft of a family member, and you may have people that you know that have been, because a drunk driver crosses the, mi the middle stripe and kills a family of four, and you lost your kid or your, or your, you know, your, your, your sibling or whatever, let me just tell you, you do not believe that that drunk driver is uh, outside of moral agency in his action. He didn't mean to kill anybody, but he is responsible. Let's forget American law for, for just a minute. And go back to the Israel code. If you had an ox that was into goring, right? And, uh, and you, your neighbor gets gored without warning, you are somehow complicit. You're responsible for the injury that's been incurred because you didn't warn. Because there's a, there, there is this concept that we have to hang on to called agency. And as I talk about alcohol, what it does is it inhibits certain features of your cognition, of your capabilities. And it, therefore, you become more and more characterized by what you feel like often in the, in the lust of the flesh. What I'm trying to show you is that the filling of the Holy Spirit is not God, the Holy Spirit, taking over so that you no longer have moral agency. You're no longer making your own choices, thinking your own thoughts. And this is what's happened in not carefully parsing these things. We said that the filling of the Holy Spirit is control by the Spirit. He's, under, he's in control. Jesus take the wheel or something. And apparently the Holy Spirit commanding Paul or, or commanding us through Paul and the inspiration of Ephesians with all these commands in red, these commands show us that we don't lose moral agency. We are responsible to choose what God has told us to choose. And he doesn't choose for us. And as much as I don't want my moral agency sometimes, I don't want the responsibility of making the choice. Men, if your wife looks to you and you're tired and she says, what do we do now? And you don't want to think about what we do now. I just like to watch the game. But honey, we need to decide what to do now about whatever the thing is. You're like, I don't really want, you don't want that moral agency at that moment. I don't want to lead. I don't want to direct. I don't want to, that's work. I'm trying not to work. As one helpful theologian recently said, when we get home from work, gentlemen, we need to show up to work. When we get home from work in the evening, it's time to work, in, uh, to work at home on our family and our relationships, on our kids. If you're, if you're away in the day and you come home at night, you want to, oh, I want to relax. Well, the kids need you to uh, enjoy training them when you come home. And so my point is that moral agency is not lost because of alcohol, in my view, responsible for your choices. And you chose to submit to that decline in your capabilities. So we, we have stiff penalties for driving under the influence of alcohol. We have stiff penalties for people that hurt people when they drive under the influence of alcohol. I believe that is requiring a certain level of moral agency, and it's still true in the filling of the Holy Spirit. My point is that God doesn't take over the reins so that you aren't making choices. My point is that God is having his influence in you so that you're able to choose 
to think his thoughts. You're able to want what he wants. You're able to walk with him. Just because you get married doesn't mean you lose moral agency in your marriage. Well, I did mean to close a little earlier, but uh, we'll pick up on the filling of the spirit and, and uh, go through the household code next hour. Let's shift over to the Lord's table. I don't have time to do the Lord's table. Please, I beg your indulgence here. We, uh, we did have a plan, but it wasn't a very tight plan. There is absolutely no way to do the Lord's table with you this week. Do me a favor. Will you, uh, first hour crew, if that's what you like, will you come first hour and we'll do it next Sunday together and we'll do it right. I don't want to do, I don't want to pretend like we're going to do it right in six minutes or something. We'll do the Lord's table first hour next Sunday and we'll do the Lord's table second hour today. And then that way, um, I can have the privilege of, of doing it different days, uh, <laughs> instead of the same day twice. Um, again, I apologize for that small adjustment, but um, I think it's best to honor the Lord that way and not try to rush through something. Our Father, we thank you for the moral agency that you've required of us, that you've given us, and uh, you hold us responsible to make our choices. The first thing we learn in the Bible about man is you give him work to do, and he's responsible to you for how he does it. Thank you for appearing to Cain and telling him the truth uh, that he needed to uh, restrain the lust to sin or he would be responsible. And I uh, thank you for the further um, uh, requirement you have of us in government uh, in Genesis 9, 6, that man would um, punish the, the, the homicide. And Father, we recognize that we're sinners and we have a sinful nature, but that doesn't take, take away our moral culpability and our wrong choices. And we're hopeless. There's no answer for it. There's no reformation. There's no reform that we can bring that's going to change that. It goes back to the cross. We just have to trust in Jesus because of all of our sins being paid for by him. And we thank you for that ultimate choice that your son chose to submit to you all the way to the death of the cross so that we, in choosing and considering Christ and the power of your spirit, believing in your son, we could have eternal life and be made sons of God fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. Father, as we consider our responsibility in the Christian life, help us to avoid those areas of life that will waste our time, like intoxication that dissipates, that wastes the awesome opportunities you've given us. And rather, let us be filled by your spirit as we trust you, as we consider your word, as he gains more and more influence over us. Father, we know that this is our design. It's our birthright. And we want to walk accordingly. Strengthen us to do so in Christ's name. Amen.